the Sports Career Podcast, episode 212. What transferable skills can be applied when pursuing a career as a sports academic into a career in high-performance lifestyle management? Sports Achiever and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in sports education, particularly in the academic world, but also how you can apply the world of being a sports academic into other careers, which we'll go in a lot more detail in this week's podcast episode. But most importantly, I hope this show provides you that support you need with regards to your sports career development. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Dr. Natalie Campbell. Natalie is a senior lecturer at the University of Gloucestershire, where she specialises in a subject matter of community sport, leadership, education and society, as well as teaching on post graduate degrees in professional practice and leadership also she's involved as a high performance lifestyle management too which you'll go in a lot more detail for that reason it's brilliant to have natalie as a special guest on the show and in this podcast episode she'll share her sports career journey and explain to you how she's a sports academic but also works in high performance lifestyle management Natalie, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast show. Please, could you share to the listeners your sports career journey? When did it all start? Hi, yeah, well, thank you for having me. Um, my career has actually been quite convoluted, not particularly linear. Um, so for any of your students listening to this and they're coming to the end of their degree and they think, oh, crap, I've just spent the last three years doing something I'm not interested in, that was me. So my first degree was economics and French, nothing to do with what I do now, but I was a semi-professional athlete. And so once I'd finished my degree and I was sort of farting around trying to figure out what I was going to do, I started coaching in um, a college. Through coaching in the college, um, one of my students just happened to be on the England cerebral palsy football team. I started volunteering with them. Um, a few years down the line of doing that, that then led me to do a PhD with Paralympic sport. Um, and then after that, that then led me to work for the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, which then led me to work to the English Institute of Sport, which then led me to being a psychologist and into a career in academia. So my focus is on um, disability high performance sport. 15 years later, absolutely nothing to do with what I graduated in. So Yes, if there's any takeaway, it is that if you've just come to the end of your three years and and you're thinking, I don't want to do this as a career, don't worry. Look, I've got a big smile on my face, not because of that piece of advice, but more the journey. And, and there's one thing I've said the last four years and through my career journey as well, how important is to look at a career as a journey and not a job from what we study, if that makes sense. 
I think the whole system is a bit bonkers insofar as asking 16-year-olds to decide what do you want to do for the rest of your life. I mean, uh, some of the most interesting people I know now, uh, sort of 50 years old, have only just found out what it is that they want to do. And so they're embarking on completely different career paths. And I think there's a time to be sensible and think, right, I've got bills to pay. I need a job. And it's okay to think of it as I need to do this job whilst I'm trying to figure out my career journey and spend time. There's no rush. Spend time figuring out what you want to do, what you enjoy. And slowly but surely, if you make the right changes, it will happen. But like I said, with the the sensible side, knowing that, you know, you can't just sit around and daydream all day. You've got to have a job and pay those bills, but then pay attention to what you like and you enjoy and and the right path will reveal itself in time. Just going back in time when you were coaching, was that the defining moment when you went, right, I'm going to give this a go with the pivot of what you've just studied? That makes sense. It was interesting. So um, I was a basketball player. Um, I talent I did into rowing, but that's later. Um, but I was a basketball player. And so I was a basketball coach in um, a college. And it was through that I kind of, found that I quite liked teaching so whilst I started off just doing like the um, extracurricular coaching that then led me at the time I was also doing a qualification in personal training because I thought I really enjoyed the gym aspect of it and I thought I'd go down the strength and conditioning athletic development route so that led me to pick up a couple of model uh, modules in fitness testing which then led me to pick up a couple of other modules and so I slowly transitioned from just doing the extracurricular basketball coaching to then working with the A-level students then working with the BTEC students and it was through that that you know teaching had never been something that I, I'd even considered as a career um, but I, I liked it and it turned out that I was all right at it so I did my teacher training on the job and took as many opportunities to do as much as I could. And it was purely serendipitous that one of my students was the goalkeeper for the England cerebral palsy football team. And he was the one that said to me, oh, Natalie, can you, I've got trials and I need to do a bit of SAQ, so speed, agility, quickness stuff. Can you help me? And I was like, sure. I've got no idea what I'm doing, but let's have a go. Um, Yeah, and somehow it worked out. He got selected for the team. I went to go do some stuff with them and then doors just started opening could you explain that point i'm super excited because this is why i did this podcast show started four years ago because i love this sometimes what i'm trying to share here with my responses sometimes we're in the unknown but it creates up new opportunities and it's something i sort of go when i go to the universities i sort of say you've got to put yourself out there try new things and new things will open you've just said it just then what you've experienced working with these athletes so i haven't done the traditional sports coaching with uh, disability athletes. So my coaching was basketball, everybody basketball players. Um, But my PhD was part funded by the British Paralympic Association. And the idea of it, it was more social psychology. Um, And the idea of it was to figure out how can universities better support students with disabilities who want to be on the performance pathway to becoming Paralympians. So if you think of being an Olympic athlete, the trajectory from school to being an Olympian is quite linear. Yeah, gifted and talented, you'll then represent the county, then 
unders and then England's and then G and it's and there are lots of universities that, that are set up with state-of-the-art equipment facilities policies regulations to support the Olympic athletes um but at the time, so this was 2010, so 10 years ago, um, there was very little provision set up for Paralympic athletes. So my PhD was to was to find the very few students that were out there that were young adults with disabilities that were studying full time in higher education and were also um, had been selected to perform at 2012. What were the the, tra the trajectories of their life that had meant that they could fulfil all of those three? aspects um and it, the phd was the pivoting point for me which I, th I think is what sort of we're getting to um because through that i really expected the focus of the work to be on disability and it wasn't by the end of the three years with the athletes it was very much about their well-being their identity management how they manage their personal lives and their professional lives and that's what sort of tipped me into the social psychology aspect of well-being which then i think leads us on to the discussion of performance lifestyle management awesome before we talk about that i just got to go back in time a little bit more what did you learn the most from that phd from your perspective i about myself i learned that i'm um far more capable of sitting in a room and doing work for hours and hours on end than i ever thought i was um because very much at school, typical PE junkie, running around, causing havoc, didn't like sitting down and and listening. So I was very surprised that I was able to lock myself in the library for nine hours a day and just type. Um, about the student, um, yeah, about the, the students with disabilities I worked with on the project, I think what I learned most about them um, was that Many many of the studies that I'd read beforehand had had sort of lumped everyone together insofar as a disabled person. And naively, I went into the project thinking that I was going to have these 12 people where the results were going to be pretty similar. And they were totally, totally, totally different. And that very much opened my eyes to the, the stratification of disability and the internalisation of it and how I had one student who completely didn't even like to call herself disabled. She had an illness um, which led to multiple physical disabilities for her, but because she'd contracted an illness, she didn't consider herself disabled. Whereas there was another um, student who was very, very, very able bodied, um, but they'd had. Uh, a traumatic brain injury which left them with um, facial paralysis and considerations with their face um, and so if you think of someone being disabled there was actually nothing about his body that, that was disabled but socially he was probably one of the most disabled individuals because of how he looked so and and all the different people in between and for me that was just fascinating and, and very eye-opening into my idea of inclusion i find this really interesting and I, I before i talk about today's podcast topic i think this is really important for students who do research in general out of interest now from that experience have you seen research have more of an important role in sport and in society um i mean i think that's a great question and 
as a, a, I call myself a pracademic, so part practitioner, part academic, um, the, the gaps in terms of what we need to find out, nine times out of 10 are brought by the practitioners. So at a conference, at a forum, um, at a networking event, and you speak to people and they, and you realise, oh, I'm having that issue as well. Oh, I'm having that issue as well. And it's only through the story and the narrative of the problem that academia then picks it up and says, OK, well, how can we take this from isolated case studies to crafting a really important, you know, legitimate evidence-based solution to this problem? That solution is then found through the research that is then kicked back out into the academic community through conferences and networking and, and stuff so it's it's pretty cyclical and was that sort of the moment which decided for you to then be an academic i like it what's that term here pracademic a pracademic pr- 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 i like that so what inspired um, you to be a pracademic um in going from a career perspective because if there's students listening in who may have done the masters and they want to be a lecturer like what inspired you to take that next step with regards to your career path um so I was my practitioner role I had sort of nearly 10 years of practitioner work in performance lifestyle management um and then once I finished my PhD I wasn't sure what I was going to step into academia for me seemed quite stuffy quite rigid um and I was very fortunate enough to um, pick up a role at the University of Bath that was part-time working with the EIS, part-time um, lecturing. And for me, that really sort of satiated both hungers. I'd got the bug for research um, and clarity of evidence and trying to find solutions to social problems. Um, but also it sort of kicked me back into my teaching 10, 15 years ago of being actually, you know, I like being a teacher and I like facilitating learning. Um, And so by doing that, that, yeah, very much helped me fulfil both worlds. And it's sort of, it's a bit of a catch-22 because the better you get in academia, the more classes they give you and the, the more contracts you get. And so it sort of gets to a point where you almost have to choose which one you're going to be better at and then you get your status and your credentials at that and then that allows you to say actually I need a bit of time out to do the other thing so whether it's you get really good in academia and you say actually um, I want it written into my contract that I'll do four days academia and one day coaching or one day sports psychology or one day working with the teams or if you decided to go down the practitioner route and you get really, really good at it, universities will pay you quite a lot of money to come in for a day a week to speak with their students about your experiences and, and translate the theory into the applied. Um, so both are possible. And I've learned from experience that if I was only being a practitioner, I'd be very bored because the intellectual side of my brain would be, I need something. If I was only in academia, the monkey in my brain that runs around going, I need, I need to move, I need to do stuff, I need to be on projects, I need to see people, um, wouldn't be satisfied either. So I'm in quite a, a sweet spot position right now in terms of being able to do both. 
I can definitely tell by the the tone of your voice. And thank you so much for sharing that because it's conversations like this. I hope people are listening can get a better understanding. It's not like you're in a fixed position. You know, sometimes we don't think we we don't have those choices, but you do. Because um, there's a phrase I use, you have theory knowledge and practical knowledge, and you're applying both simultaneously, which I love. And, and I can, again, you, I can hear it through the, your enthusiasm. How did you apply those transferable skills with regards to high performance lifestyle management? Like what added that to your workload? What, what inspired you to get involved in this uh, niche, if that makes sense? Yeah. So I was working for TAS, which is the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme. And at the time, the remit of TAS was to support students that were in full-time further in higher education with additional funding. Um, So if they were on the the cusp of breaking into professional, into whatever that looked like, but they needed extra money to go to an international competition or they needed extra money to buy new equipment, something like that. That was TAS's remit. Um, And I managed a a team of individuals, lifestyle support managers that were in universities and those those individuals in the universities would support the TAS athletes that were in the university. Um, So as that role developed, there were some very special um, students that sort of came through that I guess needed extra attention, extra facilitation, um, extra support. And that's sort of when that itself engendered this notion of performance lifestyle management. At the same time, so bearing in mind this was 10 years ago, the English Institute of Sport had just developed this role of um, a performance lifestyle advisor. And the idea was that you've got your sports psychologists that very much deal with the on the field performance based aspects of the individual and the performance lifestyle advisor did everything off field um and that role it's taken 10 it's taken 10 years really for people to very much understand the importance of supporting someone's mental health well-being and life outside of sport um Interestingly, this is what I wanted to do my PhD in 10 years ago. And I was knocking on the door of university saying, I want to do something to do with well-being and mental health because these students that I'm working with at TAS, they've got issues that go far beyond just the deadline for their assignment. And nobody knew what I was talking about. I got all the doors slammed in my face um, because it just, it wasn't a thing. It was like, well, athletes don't have mental health problems. Athletes don't have well-being issues they've got nothing to complain about they're spending all their time doing what they love and getting paid for it um so being able to to take my skills that I'd learned previously of being a teacher and then taking this the skills of being a coach listening problem solving understanding everything that's going on in the background that might be affecting a performance that's actually got nothing to do with the skills or the technical or the tactical aspects of uh, of the performance. It's something in the background is happening that's preventing that person from achieving. And whether that is, you know, an analogy of you've got a really good student who suddenly starts completely acting up 
and then you find out that their parents are getting divorced something way way in the background um or you've got um an example a paralympic athlete that i had that heard um through the classification system she'd moved up a classification which meant that her pips her person uh, personal independence profile had um changed her funding and so because her funding was going to be changed she was going to be losing her car which meant because she lost her car she couldn't get to training anymore but it's things that you wouldn't necessarily think about unless you're right there um with the athlete and and really understanding all of the different challenges that they have in their life i'm just trying to decode this because i find this really interesting does you do you think it relates to like a stigma of fear but that fear hasn't actually happened which because I think this is really important and I just wanted in the moment where do things need to develop more because mental health now the last three to four years has started to be accepted one thing I would love you to define if this is okay is how would you define well-being and you know and how can well-being maybe resolve those fears that these athletes are going through going through but we can't see it from a physical standpoint that makes sense yeah so everything in mental health is being on a continuum um, and you've got chronic ill-being right at the end, so say like minus 10. And then you've got a zero in the middle. And that's sort of like a, a languishing. And then you've got plus 10 right at the other end of the continuum. And that's super hedonistic, all things, all singing. Everything is absolutely 100% perfect in your life, which very, very rarely happens. The normative, the normative population will sort of sit between maybe a plus one and a plus six. And this is sort of separate, but helps to understand it, depending on people's individual circumstance, resilience, traits, coping mechanisms, all of that kind of stuff. Some people just naturally sit on the six. Some people just naturally sit on the one. Say like we've got an athlete that, Use the example I said before, you know, their parents are, are getting divorced. And for them, they might think that other people will think that that is a very trivial thing to be concerned about. And because they're an elite athlete, they should be able to block off those emotions and block off those feelings and perform regardless. If that individual naturally sits at like a plus two, it's possible that they might go down to a plus one maybe a zero, maybe a minus one. And that's okay to have those fluctuations and go from a state of normative, low normative well-being to the start of non-normative ill-being. If there aren't the people in place and the support mechanisms in place, such as performance lifestyle, to help that individual, then they can sit on that minus one for quite a while. And if you sit on that minus one for quite a while, it's very easy to slip down to minus two and then to minus three. And that's when we can get into like clinical considerations of depression, anxiety. And that's when we get into the very much non-normative issues of, of ill-being. So well-being is we want to think of someone that is able to cope with the day-to-day -day normal demands of life. And being able to do that competently and confidently, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't do with an extra boost of something positive to take them up from the plus two to the plus three to the plus four. And so, like I said, depending, and this is this sort of comes in like the psychometrics of the individual, 
Um, depending on where that individual sits on the plus one to plus ten, if you've got someone that naturally sits on the plus six, if something bad happens in the background, it's not it's most likely not going to completely derail them. Whereas if someone sits normally on the plus one, plus two, that's when we can start to think, okay, this person might need some form of additional support. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It, and, and trust me, I, I feel like I'm back at university like a student again, and it's got me really curious. You, you mentioned really briefly about sort of a positive in, in a day. Could you give an example? For example, could a positive be a day where you've got a, I don't know, routine? Or could it be that you listen to a podcast to feel that fulfillment? Because this is what I do in my morning to, to make sure I'm positive. I, I listen to things on purpose to get me in that right mindset. Is that the sort of examples or is it, am I totally wrong, um, out of interest? Like, I'm just intrigued. No, you're, you're completely right. And it's sort of, if you think of someone that says, well, I'm doing, if someone says I'm doing okay, so I don't need anything else, you can take that at face value and be, oh, that's fine, but could you be better? And it's helping the individual figure out what is that better for them. For some people, that better is, swimming in the river first thing in the morning freezing cold and feeling that deep connectivity with nature and for some people that is completely their buzz and that's what they need other people in order for them to get better maybe they can just do a painting do one of those mindful coloring in things and for someone else that's complete bonkers and a waste of time other people find that they need their positivity from music. Other people find that they need it from meditation. And there's there's lots of different tricks to, to be able to figure out, okay, well, I'm doing well, but how could I do better? Honestly, this is the juicy stuff I had no idea we'll be talking about, but I think this is really, really important for young athletes particular and older athletes I just want to pivot this conversation and the one thing I love to do Natalie is share how I got connected with my special guests and we got connected on Twitter uh, because I sort of post a networking question of how to network effectively and you gave us three brilliant tips but the one that is your number one tip is building relationships could you define that in a lot more detail and with regards to people's career how is building your network really created new doors with regards to your career development? I find networking very cringy. I'm not very good at it and I never have been. I'm not very good at small talk and I'm not very good at pretending that I'm interested in something that I'm not, which makes me a terrible guest at, at most parties. But I'm, I'm genuinely very interested in learning about people and what makes them tick. And some people off the bat really don't like to give you that information straight away. It takes a long time to break that layer. And so because networking is very much a part of academia, you go into conferences and dinners and all this stuff. I had to sort of reflect on, OK, how can I get better at doing something that makes me really uncomfortable? So for me, I just had to completely reframe it about I'm not going to network. I'm going to build a relationship. And if out of I was in a room with 100 people, if I just managed to scope out that one person that was happy to have a deeper conversation with me than just, oh, how did you find that presentation? 
their type font was ridiculous, wasn't it? And it it would take a while, but I'd sort of have this, you know, like when you go on your first date, you've got your backup questions. I'd have my backup questions with me at networking events to try and find the people that I could build relationships with. And one of the key things for me was to make it very clear, and especially if it was someone that had greater credentials than I, that I wasn't looking for anything from them because I think sometimes that can be quite disingenuous. Um, So my second thing to hold in mind was to make sure that if I put forward to them, how can I help you? Then to me, that made it feel a lot less like networking. It made me feel more like I was developing something much more personal with this individual well meaningful as well the one thing I've learnt myself is add value add value than ask and I'm going to have to say massive thank you for that tweet because we're doing this now and I've thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this conversation so much out of interest Natalie just reflecting from your career what have you enjoyed the most what have I enjoyed the most crikey what I most enjoy is when I get a text or an email or I bump into an athlete that that I worked with five, six years ago and they say, oh, I'm really thankful that you said or did this for me because I carry that around with me now. For me, it's not about, and I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I will do anyway. For me, it's not about if they win medals or not, or if they're the fastest in the country at doing something or not. For me, it's about, I've done my job properly. If I have helped that person come come back to reality, come back to just being a normal person, because when you're in the highs of being an elite athlete and all the radio stations want you and you're winning all your medals and and you're a name and everybody wants to work with you, the real, real challenge comes, well, what happens five, six years later when people don't remember your name, people don't remember your face, people can't remember where you came on the medals tables. Um, if, I've helped, if I have helped someone just live a, a normal life, for me, that's what I enjoy the most, being able to see people come, come back down secure and meaningful way. That's amazing. Like I've got this big smile because I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this podcast chat. But I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. You've provided bags of career guidance tips. And I have to say it with your really funky career journey. Final question is, what three tips would you give to a university graduate to help them find their passion in the sports industry? Tip number one, and you might have had it on the podcast before I'm not sure because it's it's quite common but I don't think people heed enough attention to it when people say oh I was just lucky I was just lucky no luck happens when preparation meets opportunity and so the students need to prepare for any eventuality and and the the opportunity say yes to as much stuff as you can and an opportunity will present itself and if you are prepared enough for that the success or the luck will happen um I think tip number two and I've almost I sort of just said it then just say yes to as much stuff as possible just say yes because you never know where it'll lead to um and then number three 
easier said than done, but find people around that can help you with it. If you don't know what you want to do now, that is 100% okay. It's highly unlikely you're going to get your perfect job straight away. And that's okay. We just default back to, we just need a job because we've got bills to pay and we need some weekend money. Say yes and prepare and, and then things will start to move in the direction you want them to. That is great. I really do hope the listeners take those three tips on board as much as I have just now. Out of interest, Natalie, how can people interact with you online? You can find me on Twitter, um, Dr. NJ Campbell. Um, and you can find my staff profile pages at the University of Gloucestershire. Or you can find me on LinkedIn quite easily. That is great to all the listeners listening in. Those three links will be on my website relating to this blog post. Natalie, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a really interesting and enjoyable podcast with Natalie. For me, there are so many learning elements I've taken from this podcast. And the first one is that it's okay that your degree or your education doesn't in line with your career aspirations. Like she said, she did economics and French, which she said it just wasn't for her with regards to her career after completing that. And she says, okay, because it was actually coaching which sparked that new career path, which then led her to the world of teaching, which then led to working as a senior lecturer, which then led her to do a really interesting PhD study. So it was sort of that passion, desire, but that real interest with regards to coaching and teaching. So I wanted to have this because sometimes from a career perspective with our degrees or any education we study, we think it defines who we are when we finish that course, but that's not the case. I think what's more important, which I'm learning myself, is having that interest. When you have that interest and curiosity, new opportunities arise, which then leads to those final three career tips right at the end, which are so important to apply. Like for me, creating a Creating your own luck is part of the process when starting a career in the sports industry. You just never know when opportunities rise. And that's why it's important at times to say yes, to then just get that experience and just see if you really like that from a permanent standpoint because you just don't know where it will lead you. You don't, you'll meet new people and things just happen with regards to momentum when you're involved in these new opportunities. So look, Again, I hope you found this podcast helpful, particularly if you want to work in the world of sports education and apply Natalie's tips into practice relating to your sports career development today and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Natalie said, luck happens when preparation meets opportunity. 